hey, I hope that you've enjoyed the service so far. I hope that God is speaking to you where you are. I'm really looking forward to seeing at the end kind of what the artists uh, on either side of the platform have for us with the painting. But listen, here's what I want you to know right now. Maybe you consider yourself to be a creative type. Maybe you consider yourself to be an artist. There is something in the message this morning for you. However, maybe you consider yourself the last thing, the furthest thing from an artist, and creativity is not exactly your forte. I want you to hear this. There is something in the message for you today. As we dip into the Genesis account, the very, very beginning of the Bible, the opening pages, there is something for each and every one of us. And at the end, ultimately, a message for us together. So I hope you're gonna stick with me as we go here. First thing we're gonna do is talk about how God is creative. No one creates like God creates. That God creates something out of nothing, or at least he has and he can in the beginning, right? Even here and now, he is the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. This manifests itself in, in restored relationships, in revived spirits, even in physical healings. The creative spirit ends up making paths where there seemed to be no way forward miraculously. God alone is the source of all such recreation. But that's really what we're talking about here, right? Recreation, taking things and people that are in broken or incomplete states and recreating them, changing them, perfecting them. When we say, though, that God alone can create something out of nothing, we should remember that nothing means nothing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? The heavens, everything above us and the earth, everything beneath us, God created from scratch. A theological term that maybe you've heard tossed around before is creatio ex nihilo which is Latin for creation out of nothing. Now, if we had more time today, we would dig into whether or not this passage in Genesis is truly saying that God created out of nothing. We're not gonna get into that. Suffice it to say that there are various biblical and theological ways to get to that idea, the idea that ultimately God is the source of all things and that therefore he is the sole creator of all things. It's a truly helpful and it's a deeply Christian idea. It's also a complicated idea because it leads to all sorts of challenging secondary questions like you know, the nature of evil and eternity, for example. But it also helps shape and secure our understanding of the fundamental goodness of creation, as well as the absolute uniqueness, the holiness of God, our Father, our Maker. No one creates like God. Yet, in a sense, we are all invited to create like God. After God created the light and the dark, the day and the night, the sky and the water, the dry ground, all kinds of vegetation, after he created fish and birds and animals, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And there is so much debate and I guess, I don't know, flexibility in how both Jews and Christians have interpreted the term that's here translated as image. 
In Hebrew, it's tzelem. What, what it might mean in this context. At the very least, though, it seems to imply that God created humanity to be like him in some way, to, to act like him on earth among the rest of creation. So in that sense, we occupy kind of a strange, unique middle position. We are simultaneously both part of God's creation and yet also stewards of God's creation. We're invited very early on in the story to be a part of his creative work in the world. Now, just before we look at the example, we should note quickly that the opening chapters of Genesis are, you know, for all intents and purposes, they're ancient Hebrew poetry. Now, we won't get into all the nuanced ways that we can classify this material as poetic, but I will make a point of saying that just because it is poetic does not make it not true. There are many poems that are historical narratives, just like there's a ton of prose, non-poetic writings that are just pure fiction. The form doesn't dictate the content, but the form does help us be informed as to how we ought to read it. I bring this up for a few reasons. One, in light of the fact that we're engaging so much with the arts during today's service, I thought it would seem like a wasted opportunity to not point out the brilliant artistry and elements of the Bible itself. And two, if you're gonna pay close attention as you're reading through these opening chapters, which I would personally encourage you to do if you have not already done, you'll probably notice that it seems like in chapter two of Genesis, we're starting at verse four here, we pick it up, we pick up what feels like a whole other account of creation. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Which, if you're just trying to read it as a straight narrative, it might be a little bit disorienting because we just talked about that. But if you approach these accounts as pictures of creation, as, as images, each illustrating different parts or angles of the story, this is, not, this is not a problem, this is a gift. So circling back, how do we see early on in the biblical story how humanity is invited to participate in God's creative work? Do you know how many times the act of speech is referenced to God's creative work in the first chapter of Genesis alone? And God said, let there be light. God called the light day. In the darkness, he called night. And God, God said, let, let the there water be a vault between the waters sky. God called one the dry ground, so God land. said, let there be God light. Said, let the vault in the sky By my count, 16 times, there is a clear indication that what God says accomplishes things. Also, it seems as though there's an indication that speech in general, that words matter. There are loads of places in the Bible, Old Testament and New, that talk about how death and life are in the power of the tongue. What we say actually matters. Well, here in Genesis, we see that in a very surprising way. After God spoke all things into beings and gave names to a whole bunch of them, he then invites mankind to partner in that creative activity. The Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. And he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. I just, I can't read this passage without hearing the old Bob Dylan song playing in the background of my, my brain. Man gave names to all the animals. Now, obviously, the humans would not have given them English names to these animals, right? We're not even sure what, what language the early humans would have spoken. But that's not the point. The point 
is that God trusted and entrusted us with the opportunity to, in a sense, to continue his act of creation through speech. I mean, this is huge. But you might be saying, Mark, to give a name to a porcupine or hippopotamus is a far cry from an act of creation. Now, making a hippopotamus, that's a big deal. You would be right. We do need to remain clear on the fact that God himself was the one who ultimately formed these animals physically. But I want you to think for a moment just how important it is to have a name for something. So if you're under the sink and you're trying to fix the leak that has been keeping you awake for the last three nights and you're, you're, you're just tucked right in there and you can't even see outside and so you have your helper who is being very kind to be able to help you with this and you see the the the, the the part that needs to be twisted and you call out for, for the thing. I, I need, pass me the, the, the thing. If you can't call it a wrench, how will they give you the wrench? Or consider this, it's your turn to get supper tonight. And so you dial the, the number for your favorite place that makes that food that you really like. And they, they answer the phone and, and you say, yeah, I'd like to pick up a, a 12 inch, it, it's circular and you, I think you put tomato sauce often on it and I've seen the cheese. If you can't order a pizza, how will you get a pizza? These might seem like some pretty low stakes examples to you. This is admittedly true. If you scale it up though to something like, I don't know, a safety release valve for a nuclear power plant or the landing gear on an airplane that you're on, you might start to see how having names for things kind of matters. Or maybe consider this. This is a Rottweiler, and this is a chocolate lab. Both are dogs. Both have dark hair. Both are approximately the same size. But if you were unable to distinguish between the two, you might end up in a sticky situation. Now, all you fans of Rottweilers out there, I know they're wonderful pets. I know, I know. So language can describe the differences that we see between things, again, the Rottweiler Labrador example. But it can also, here's the thing, it can also start to prescribe differences between things. Language not only reflects reality, but it truly, in a sense, helps shape reality. There's some really fascinating science behind this, but we won't look into that today. What we will look at is the Bible. As for me, God said to Abram, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram, your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you. Kings will come from you. Now, if you don't know the story of Abram slash Abraham, at this point in time, it certainly doesn't seem like Abram, who only has one child at this point, and frankly, he's an illegitimate one at that. Like he's poised in any way to be a father of many nations in his context. But the God who calls things that aren't as though they are, he throws a new name tag onto Abram's life. And that name, these words, they actually affect something. They change Abraham's life. As parents, we know the names that we give to our children has lasting consequences for them. But this is not just a power that parents have. What we say to and about others, it seems to have real creative or destructive power over them. Do not take this God-given, God-shaped power lightly. Be shaped by God's word and thus use your words to reflect God's kingdom. How? 
how can our words have any impact at all? I mean, it's only God that has the power to create. So how has he shared this, this creative power with us? He did so through inspiration. The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. The same, the same breath that was used to speak the cosmos into existence was then exhaled. It was inspired into humanity. And here's the point I, I promised you way back at the beginning. Even though we've been talking about like concepts of creativity and art and poetry, this truth is here for all of us. For all of us who breathe the breath of life, we carry the image of God. Some of us might think of creativity in an exclusively artistic sense. And some of us who are not artistic, we, we might look jealously upon those who are, wishing that we had you know, that kind of gifting. And it's easy to elevate those, those types of gifts to the point that we ignore the other aspects of creativity. Creativity doesn't merely manifest itself as artistry, but it also manifests itself as, as productivity. Did you know that a lot of people, this might be shocking, they don't like their jobs. You probably did know that because you either do not like your job, you have had a job that you do not like, or you're related to someone who will constantly be reminding you about how much they don't like their job. I have had several jobs that I did not particularly enjoy, and I will refrain from naming them here just in case any former supervisors are with us today. After getting home from such a day on one of those jobs, I would wearily lie down on the couch and, you know, I would contemplate how obviously work like this is some sort of consequence of the fall of sin, right? Kind of stuff that happens in chapter three of Genesis. We haven't got there yet. After they eat the fruit, they're not supposed to and all that. In paradise, Adam and Eve obviously were just sitting around chilling with the animals all day. And you know, in heaven, I imagine it'd be like that too. It's just rest, rest, nothing but rest. But then one day I noticed the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Again, this is at the very, very beginning before things go sideways. Work is not some sort of a problem to overcome. Hear this, it's part of what we were designed to do. The creative image that we bear, our voice, it involves our words and our actions, our mouths, as well as our hands. So I grew up self-identifying as an artist. Um, I always had a bit of a complicated relationship with that term because I never felt quite as creative as a lot of the people around me. Had a bit of a complex in that regard, but I'm not paying you for counseling, so we'll just skip that for now. Suffice it to say, it was definitely a core of who I was. And I grew up actually learning how to play music in this, this very church here. And uh, when I finished high school, I ended up traveling in bands, uh, some worship bands and some performance bands. I ended up writing. I, my wife and I moved to the United States for a while and lived in Nashville and we did recording down there. And it was just definitely so much of who I was. And then one day we were blessed by the birth of our first child. And it was just amazing, such a wonderful experience. And after a few months, I realized that my, my son was not going to eat uh, good intentions or failed attempts at becoming famous, but he was gonna need actual food. So for the first time in my life, I got a career. Not a job, I had lots of jobs, uh, but uh, an actual career. It was sort of a surprise in how it landed in my lap, um, but it turned out to be something that surprised me in lots of ways. This is where I worked. 
Uh, I got the job through a friend of a friend online. I had no idea what I was gonna be doing. I showed up on the first day and I found out pretty quickly that what I was doing was I was packing and I was selling bricks. You know, the kind of bricks that go on the outside and the inside of homes, like bricks. Um, and to be transparent, at first, I did not love it. It was hard work and it was nothing like what I had kind of thought that I was gonna be doing with my life. But pretty early on, I decided to kind of put my nose down and just apply myself so that I could, I don't know, try to do good and, and you know, make a living for myself and for, for my family. But I worked there for about three years. And after, after about a year, I had an epiphany of sorts. The epiphany is this. Houses are built with bricks. Hospitals are built with bricks. And as it turns out, churches are built with bricks. See, what I was doing wasn't just paying my bills. It wasn't just about what's in it for me, but I was actually a part of serving others. This was part of my God-given mission to be able to image God. See, it turns out, it turns out that there is nothing really insignificant. There is no work that is unmeaningful. Most of the time, it just kind of comes down to a lack of imagination, a lack of imaging. Often, we're unable to see how what we do matters. I mean, not for ourselves, not for others. But hear this, hear this. If you work in in retail, or if you work in, in financial services, if you work in customer service, or if you work in healthcare, whether you work at a, a nursing home, or whether you work at McDonald's, whether you're in construction, or whether you are a poet, a priest, or some sort of a painter, it's all kingdom work. You know, when, when Pink Floyd snarled out their famous lyrics, all in all, you're just another brick in the wall. It's pretty obvious that they weren't painting a very cheery picture of that image, but I would argue that's probably just because they had a, a fairly different view of what the final construction could look like. You are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself, being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. We are being built together for a dwelling place of God, together. No brick stands alone. No part of God's image is meant to operate alone. That's what I loved so much about this last series that we just walked through, The Six Habits of Healthy People. If you haven't checked out those teachings, I strongly encourage you to go back through them all. Now, on the surface, it could have seemed like they were designed to help you as an individual thrive. You know, find your identity, focus your purpose, respect your body, steward your finances. But in each and every case, when you look at the biblical teachings that they presented, the point was not merely to make you better but it was to make us better so that we could image God better. For the Christian, self-care is only part of the story. We care for ourselves so that we can, like Christ, give ourselves away. 
no virtue exists in isolation because it turns out that you can't image God by yourself. And this was surprising to me, but again, this is not some sort of consequence of our sin, some sort of second best scenario. Check this out. It's part of our original design. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. To fully image God, to represent his creative role on earth with our words, with our actions, to do so through through productivity and artistry, we necessarily need to do so in community. An image with no one to behold it is, well, it's nothing to speak of at all. Church, listen, we need each other. The body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, well, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Church, together, we as the body of Christ, we image God to this world. Oh, if I had more time, I would spend all of it unpacking the nature of Jesus, the incarnate word of God, the the pinnacle, the purest expression of his image. He was a master storyteller and quite likely an above average carpenter. But that's another story for another day. Hear now, hear this. Whether you consider yourself a creative or not, I just, I hope that you can see the way that God has wired and inspired you matters where you are today matters. How you live matters. Together, church, we image God to a world that desperately needs imagination. Don't let another day go by pretending that what you do or how you live is insignificant, that your choices, they don't affect others, that you can live merely for yourself or on your own. Together, we image the living God. Let me pray for you today. Holy Spirit, thank you for the fact that you inspire us daily, that you give us everything that we need for life and for godliness and that you do it in community. Even though in this season, this long season, we do feel separated by so many things, but we thank you that you are tying us together for people who are joining us online today who are a part of this church body and who are part of your body, Lord. We just ask that you'd help them see with renewed eyes the way that you have uniquely gifted and inspired them to serve, that they would feel encouraged, but that they would also know that they do not live merely for themselves. And for the people who are joining us today who stumbled across our feed or who are invited by others and who don't yet know that imaging, that imagination, Holy Spirit, I just pray that you'd speak to them, that you would encourage them to ask the questions and to take the steps towards you. It's in the name of your son, the perfect image, we pray. Amen.